0: Hi, everyone. Sarah Schaefer here. Thanks for checking out Art History Happy Hour. The episode that follows is back from when our podcast was called State of the Arts. And you can now find our episode blog and other resources, including a link to our Patreon page at arthistoryhappyhour.com. Welcome to State of the Arts, the podcast that explores how art and its history shape our world today. My name is Sarah Schaefer.
1: And I'm Tina Rivers Ryan.
0: In today's episode, we're going to talk about a subject that was actually a listener request. Um, The the request was that we discuss stories relating to art and science. And while this is an incredibly vast topic that could not possibly be covered in one episode, we're going to do our best today to, to sort of start. Um, talking about that, and we're going to do so by focusing on a single work. Um, it's a it's a work that I've seen twice in the news uh, lately, um, and the work is Claude Monet's "Impression, Sunrise." The first story. Uh, that I saw posted recently about it was, was uh, related to the June issue of Nano Letters, and in that issue, scientists announced that they had created a reproduction of the painting Impression Sunrise that had a width of just 300 micrometers, and that's three hundredths of a centimeter, so really, really tiny. Um, they used silicon pillars topped with aluminum, uh, and using this technology, they could. Re- they were showing that they could reproduce up to three hundred colors. And before that point, before this technology emerged, um, they could only do fifteen colors, and it was much more expensive. So. Uh, one publication, the New Scientist, noted that these these new sort of pixels could be used to quote store data or create small security tags on physical objects. Um, so the use of the painting in this study was, I think, basically just to show the breadth of colors that could be that could be created using this technology. And we'll we'll post a link um, to the image uh, on our blog on arthistory.today. The second story, which is what we're really going to be focusing on, um, comes from August 21st in the art newspaper uh, when it was reported that Donald Olson, an astrophysicist at Texas State University, had pinpointed the exact moment that Monet painted Impression Sunrise to 13, the 13th of November, 1872 at 7.35 a.m., And this report and a lot of articles that have come out in response to it describe this moment, November 13th, 1872, as the birth of Impressionism. This impulse to
1: use the scientific method to produce new knowledge about art is part of a larger initiative that we see in academia now called the digital humanities and basically what that means is using tools methodological tools research tools that are normally not seen in the humanistic fields for example um, analytics the study of data to try to produce some type of insight uh, to, to basically enrich or broaden our uh, understanding of works of literature or works of art or works of music so um we're going to return to this issue at the very end of this episode about what exactly it is that this kind of approach can offer us as people who want to look at and and understand and learn about art and its history um, and also what are its limitations
0: in this episode, we're going to discuss the painting itself in depth and why it's gained its status as being a sort of manifesto for Impressionism. And then we're going to discuss Olson, Olson's discovery and some of the problems surrounding it, as, as Tina mentioned. So we're going to back up now and uh, go back to April 1874, and this was the moment that a group of artists who called themselves the Anonymous Society of Painters, Sculptors, and Printmakers ex- first exhibited their work together uh, at the studio of a well-known photographer named Nadar. A quick
1: word about the the phrase Anonymous Society. Um, it doesn't mean that the members of the society who participated in this and subsequent exhibitions were anonymous. Uh It's actually a very awkward translation from a French phrase, Société Anonyme, which uh, basically is the French equivalent of, you know, comma, incorporated, period.
0: And this exhibition in and of itself was was sort of a controversial move. Um, So at this time uh, in the 19th century in France, the main way that artists sort of made names for themselves um, was through exhibiting at the official state-sponsored exhibition which was called the Salon and this was a um, this is an exhibition that happened regularly didn't always happen every year but you could say approximately every other year um, and and this was where if artists who had been uh, trained in the the major academies and, and even international artists showed their work looked you know, hoping to get buyers um, to get further commissions and really build up their, their careers uh, as artists. So the fact that this, this group of artists, the, the Société Anonym, this anonymous society, came together and exhibited outside of that official structure um, was something rather unusual uh, at the time. So at this 1874 exhibition, uh, there were works on display by artists who are now known as the main impressionists. In addition to Monet, there were works by Edgar Degas, Paul Cezanne, Alfred Sisley, and many others. And the reaction to this exhibition and many of the works it it displayed was very vehemently negative from many people. Um, And Monet's painting Impression Sunrise um, was sort of singled out for, for particular scorn uh, by, by a number of critics, one of whom was the critic Louis Lois, um, who was writing for the satirical journal Le Cherivari. I'm going to read uh, his quote in response to Impression Sunrise. He said, impression, I was certain of it. I was just telling myself that since I was impressed, there had to be some impression in it. And what freedom, what ease of workmanship, a preliminary drawing for a wallpaper pattern is more finished than this seascape.
1: When Leroy uses the term impression, he's obviously picking up on the use of that word in Monet's title. Now, impression is actually a very specific technical term that describes a particular kind of art making. So you're probably familiar with the term sketch which refers to a a very quick or schematic composition in which an artist is is perhaps just putting down their sort of preliminary thoughts or maybe um, doing a very quick study of a a scene drawn from life Um, an impression is even quicker and even more schematic than a sketch so um, when Monet calls his work impression sunrise he's admitting to the public look this is a very um, basic uh, rudimentary kind of, of, of work that I've made here and what was shocking was not that he made an impression normally you know a, a studio artist would make an impression and then make some sketches before making a final composition so all artists make impressions what was scandalous was that Monet exhibited his impression that instead of using it to go on and and make a more finished final product he that he just um, you know showed his impression and to an art critic to some or, or to the art going public people who you know go out to see art and expect to be shown you know serious professional work. To be shown somebody's, you know, first draft was sort of an insult, right? I mean, it'd be the equivalent of one of our students submitting to us an outline instead of a final paper, right? Which would not go over well, I'm assuming, Sarah, with you either. Yeah. Um, so uh, unless you asked for it. Right. right. But, um, so so that, that's, what's, uh, this, that's what is denoted by this term impression. Just wanted to, to clarify that a little bit. It doesn't just refer to an impression of the senses. It's a very particular kind of, um, of a work that an artist can make
0: sort of in response to that, that scorn and that derision that was heaped on Monet's, uh, Monet's sort of scandalous act of, of exhibiting this impression, um, this group of artists sort of came to embrace that term impression. And that's why the term impressionism uh, has followed them. And they named the subsequent exhibitions that came after that initial 1874 one um the impressionist exhibition so that's called the first impressionist exhibition
1: and by the way this this uh this idea that they this group of artists were um insulted using this term that you know that the leroy you know said oh these are the impressionists and he meant it as an epithet as an insult and then they turned around and took that and sort of wore it um this happens a lot in modern art so the cubists were another group who did not originally call themselves the cubists it was a critic who who sort of meant it as a derogatory thing you know they just make cubes in their art they're the cubists and then that name just sort of stuck and they end up being
0: the cubists right same with the ashcan school but they didn't like that term so much i don't think the cubists really like that term yeah, either. yeah. <laughs> all right we're gonna look at the painting now um, and talk about sort of more specifically why it was singled out for scorn so uh and as always we'll post an image up on our blog if you want to follow along um the style of the image going back to what tina said about what makes an impression an impression it's done in this very rough sketchy unfinished manner so all the different elements um and I guess I should say what the image is of at this point, what we're seeing is a harbor scene, a sort of industrial harbor scene. So all the things that you're seeing in it, reflections on the water, the the few figures, the boats, um all of them are done with, if you look up and zoom in closely, they just look like they're done with the quickest flick of a brush stroke. Um, even if you go in and, and look closely, one of my favorite parts of the painting is the reflection of, of the sun on the water, and it looks like he he loaded multiple uh, paints on his brush, and again, just kind of went flick, flick, flick back and forth. This is something that, that we sort of call uh, the aesthetic of the sketch, this this unfinished uh, uh, look to it was was something going back to what Tina said about the impression was something people were not used to seeing exhibited on on the walls. Again, it was something that was common in practice, and everyone knew artists did that. But those sketches weren't what went up in in exhibitions. Um, you know, if you go to any museum with any nineteenth-century collection today, you're probably going to see a whole room full full of works by Camille Corot, and there's a whole room full at the Met. Um, he did tons and tons of sketches, but those were never supposed to be exhibited. and And part of the reason that Monet decided to exhibit this this unfinished work um, was part of his his sort of intellectual and, and painterly project to produce images that reflected sort of the his eyes uninfluenced, impressions of, of nature and of a specific moment in time. So the idea of sort of, you know, what if you were blind and then we're all of a sudden given sight, how would things look to you? Probably not as we think they would because we're conditioned um, through our lifetimes to see things in particular ways. But if you don't have the ability to see, you probably, and then all of a sudden do, you would probably see things quite differently.
1: So. Th- this um this interest in 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 a sort of virgin vision um, was related to scientific experiments that were happening uh, in the late 19th century. So this was actually a topic that really interested scientists um, and that's where these artists were getting it from. But then this idea becomes incredibly important in the history of modern art. You'll constantly see different movements, different artists returning to this concept of a kind of pure vision, a vision zero. Um, so the Surrealists, um, for example, um, also wanted to try to um, create visual forms and, and see the world sort of uh, through uh, a very naive eye, whether it was um, the eye of a child or the eye of a madman to try to um, see the world through, through fresh eyes. So that's an idea that, that we keep finding in the 20th century
0: another aspect of the painting that was was controversial at the time was the fact that it's an it's an industrial landscape uh, he's depicting the harbor at love the fact that he was painting this scene of industrial mo- modernity this was coming in the midst of immense change in Paris and its environs um, this is the moment where Paris is being completely reconfigured and and re- reconstructed largely from the ground up and becoming more of an industrial city and this was not something that was prior to this moment uh, represented in painting and certainly not in academic painting. It's important to note that um, while Monet is uh,
1: depicting this industrial harbor uh, he's depicting it in a very particular way. And this connects to the concept of the fact that there's actually two strains of Impressionism. And this is a little bit reductive, but this is what you'll encounter in your um, you know, college-level survey of uh, Western European art. Uh, so he depicts this harbor. It is an industrial harbor, but you don't really get a sense of the actual industry that's happening. He seems much more interested in the effect of the sunlight reflecting off the water. Um, you don't really get a sense of, you know, class struggle, for example, or of the rise of industrialization, um, or of changing economic forces. Um, so Monet, we think, is one of those um, types of impressionists who really is interested mostly in, in recording the environment in, in, a, in a way that privileges uh, atmospheric effect. So he's really interested in light, he's really interested in color, So other artists who might be associated with this um, kind of practice are Renoir and uh, maybe Sisley and Pissarot. On the other side, you have artists who are capturing uh, the new urban environment, um, but are privileging the kinds of social experiences or social realities uh, a little bit more than they are interested in, in light and color. Um, and so these would be uh, the godfather of the impressionists, the guy by the name of Manet not to be confused with Monet uh, there's an A there instead of the O uh, also uh, Degas also Caillebotte. so um, while is absolutely right that this is a scene of an industrial harbor and that was one of the reasons that made impressionism so new and fresh that it was about capturing everyday reality rather than representing some historic or uh, mythological or um, uh, religious a uh, fictive scene, uh, the way that it looks at the world around it uh, is is very particular, um, and we can sort of distinguish between how some impressionists versus others look at that world, the kinds of questions that they ask, what they're interested in 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 depicting.
0: And some did both. Some were were interested oh, in its effects as well as sort of social relationships as the as a result of industrialization. But some did it better than others. Well, like I said, full disclosure: it's reductive. It's reductive, yeah. Moving to this discovery of the birth of Impressionism, I kind of want to now break down the different steps that Donald Olson took in order to reach the specific um, date and time. The first thing that he did was go and identify the specific hotel and room where Monet could have had this particular view of the harbor. The next thing he did was go and analyze um, uh, data relating to the sea level and the position of the sun at the time. Um, So we knew it had to be prior to 1874. So we're looking at dates around 1872 and 73. Based on analysis of of sea level and sun position, um, and the fact that ships could only enter or exit the harbors at different times, he narrowed the possible dates down to 19 during 1872 and 73. The next thing he did was look at weather reports, um... And he did this to find out what days would have had particular types of clouds or fog. And that's something you really see coming through in this industrial landscape. Uh, in addition to the effect of light on water is the effect of fog um, on our perception of the landscape. From that data, he narrowed it down to six states. Um, then he looked at the plumes of smoke. There are plumes of smoke in the background and used that to figure out which way the wind was blowing. And he narrowed from there, he narrowed the dates down to two, one in 1872 and one in 1873. Finally, um, and this is coming from, uh, art historical research. He, he relied on the argument, uh, of a curator at the museum in LAV, so in the city that's depicted in this painting and this curator is very adamant in saying that this painting was done in 1872 so using all of this data together he he calculated this date uh the birth of impressionism to as i said at the beginning 7 35 a.m november 13 1872. now we want to kind of go through what are the problems of this claim? Uh, And the first thing I I would want to point out is that when we think of Monet, the, the most common perception that we have of him is this artist, you know... Out, out in the landscape, uh, painting on on plein air, uh, which is a term meaning outside, so actually painting out of doors, um, really interested in capturing light and particular moments. And while this is true of certain points in his career, it's not true of his entire career. I mean, he's, he was an artist who lived to very old age and was producing art right up until his death pretty much um i mean well into the 20th century we passed
1: world war one so
0: so at the early point in his career in the 1860s before the first impressionist exhibition he's painting in a much more academic style and he's very influenced by manet at that point Later in the 1870s, so we get to the period of the the First Impressionist exhibition, he is working outside, but at least initially he's working on a very large scale, and many of these works weren't completed outside. He would take them back into his studio and rework them. The works that are sort of most characteristic of this, in, in, of this interest in light and moments, those came later in the late 1880s and in the 1890s so if you've seen his sort of series paintings of Rouen Cathedral um, of the haystacks or of the poplars um, I mean we have these great stories of of Monet staying in a hotel or an apartment across from Rouen Cathedral and he's basically got a stack of canvases that he's switching out um, as the light changes so we, we have images from all different points in the day Different atmospheric effects and and different different um, lighting effects, but again, that was that was much later. So um, we we have to be careful about collapsing his entire career into just this interest in light and, and atmosphere and its effect on on water or on landscapes. It's it's he has a much more complicated um, and varied career than that.
1: And I think related to what you're saying, Sarah, what you're sort of getting at is the fact that um, just because he does have an interest at certain points his career in in capturing atmospheric effects doesn't mean that he didn't exercise, sorry for the double negative, uh, some degree of, art, of um, uh, artistic license, mm-hmm. right? That, um, yeah, maybe the wind was blowing in an easterly direction, but maybe he decided that he liked the way the smoke looked better blowing in a westerly direction, right? right? I mean, there's no... Um, you know, even though there is sort of this this discourse, this idea, this theory of impressionism as capturing what you see, you know, he didn't sign a legal contract saying right. that he couldn't fudge it. And in fact, as Sarah mentioned, right, the uh, the reality of the situation is that even when he is very much invested in capturing the very specific impressions of the atmosphere which is really his period of the 1880s 1890s even then he's still fudging them he takes them back into his studio after painting them outdoors on plein air and he makes edits just so that they look better as a group when he eventually will exhibit them all together so impressionism is never really just about this pure recording of atmospheric data so this Guy Olson, to presume that you can use the painting um, to, to pinpoint an exact moment in time, he profoundly misunderstands, we think, uh, what impressionism is really all about. It's not simply literally just recording data like, um, you know, like a, a weather station. There's there's more to it than that. There's artistic choices that are being made.
0: Yeah, and that's a good transition to the next point I was going to make, which is, is another Problem, precisely what Tina says about um, this claim about Impressionism is what exactly is Impressionism? It's a really difficult concept to define, certainly the things we've been talking about with Monet and light and and capturing a moment, that's one aspect of it, but it's certainly not the only. Um, and even just looking, at, you know, if we're, if we're talking about stylistic choices, there's a huge range that you find in the Impressionist exhibition. So if you compare the work of Monet to the work of Degas, I mean, they could not be further from one another uh, in terms of style. Degas and Kaibot, those are artists who are painting in a much more Academic, much more studied, much more finished manner than what Monet is doing.
1: So, in other words, our first, you know, complaint was sort of that um, it's a bit silly to think that Monet was a faithful copyist of the environment, and that you could therefore use um, the painting to to pinpoint a specific time. The second problem that we're identifying now is that this painting is being named the birthplace of Impressionism or the birth of Impressionism. It's a very important painting in the history of Impressionism. It's, you know, one of those paintings that's usually in an art history textbook. But to claim that this painting is the birth of Impressionism and sums
0: up what it's all about and sums
1: up what it's all about is really problematic Impressionism was much more sort of complex and varied
0: even though impressionism encompasses very different stylistic means and different subject matters, the one thing that is sort of unifying about it is the fact that we have these impressionist exhibitions. We have specific moments um, where particular artists came together and exhibited their works. Um, But again, to complicate that, if we define impressionism that way, we have to include artists that are Tend to be situated outside of impressionism and into new emerging moments that are usually labeled post-impressionism. So, Paul Cézanne, who's often characterized as a post-impressionist, took part in the first impressionist exhibition. His style was very different at that time than the than the um, the style that characterizes his what we might term his post-impressionistic phase. Um, But still, he was there from the beginning. Paul Gauguin and and George Seurat, who are also kind of inheritors of Impressionism and take it in their their own directions. They also exhibited uh, in the Impressionist exhibitions. So we're talking about a large frame of time from 1874 to 1886. Um, So even that that model of, of, of impressionism that's, that's framed around the exhibitions is, is really diverse and, and, and ultimately, you know, ultimately how useful is it?
1: As we promised earlier, one of the things we wanted to do at the end of the episode is to consider how valuable uh, this, this kind of, of inquiry really is. So obviously, as we've just outlined, we, we don't know that this painting really is the birthplace of Impressionism. And even if it is, uh, we don't really know that um, you can actually connect the way the painting looks to specific um, environmental events. Uh, But putting that aside, why do we even care that that Impressionism was born at, you know, whatever, 7.35 in the morning on... I mean, what does that tell us about Impressionism? How does that change anything that we know or understand I mean is this is this information interesting is it relevant is it useful and in fact these are precisely the questions that are being raised by some of the um, I don't want to say opponents but let's just say um, skeptics of the digital humanities Um, so uh, there are certainly some really great things that are happening Um, by bringing technology and using it to look at and think about art however with projects like Olson's I think it's a little harder to explain what the payoff really is and uh, when Sarah told me about um, this article it reminded me of another one that I had seen recently um, on uh, the creators project blog uh, about um, a new um, intelligent algorithm quote-unquote, that, um, that people are using now to compare uh, works of art. And, of course, um, the idea of putting two works of art side by side is like the er ur- practice of art history. Um, if you ever took an art history class, you probably remember having one image on the left, one image on the right. Compare maybe, them. And compare them, right? And uh, actually, this is an incredibly valuable tool. This is one of the most basic um, strategies I, I try to teach my students to use when looking at a work of art is uh, imagine it different than it is right if you change the color of a, a woman's dress from red to green how does that change your your response to the work of art and that helps you understand the choices that the artist made it helps you understand why the, re- the dress is red and not green so the, the side-by-side comparison is actually very useful for learning more about the choices that an artist um, is making What this intelligent algorithm does, however, is basically just um, compare different images to find moments of correspondence and uh, what you do with that data is up to you and one of the ways the data has been interpreted is that um, people are claiming that they're able through the algorithm to identify influence that one artist was clearly copying or looking at uh, an earlier work of art. Uh, when they made their work. And so um, the example that's given um, in this article on the Creators Project blog is um, a Norman Rockwell painting from 1950. They said the computer clearly could figure out that it must be um, influenced by a painting by uh, Frederick Bazile from 1870. Now, nowhere <laughs> in the article does it explain why it's interesting to think that Norman Rockwell might have been influenced by French painting of the 1870s. Um, The article doesn't really contend with the fact that that's pretty obvious anyway. Um, Even, you know, like, does it really change anything to be able to say that this particular painting is a very specific riff off of that one? That sort of remains to be seen.
0: I mean, if you could say Norman Rockwell was looking at Basile, that would be interesting because... Not too many people know about Bazille.
1: Right. So, I mean, so maybe it would change our understanding of Bazille and and think that he perhaps had a wider reception in the art world than previously thought. Um, The problem is, is that I don't buy it. I mean, if you look at these two images, the computer is detecting correspondences that may be purely accidental. And to claim that, you know, that there's a necessary causal relationship here when it seems it's like it's pretty likely that it's just chance, I think you know undermines the idea that these this algorithm is 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 definitely producing you know information that is useful, right? So the reason that I say I don't buy it is that if you look at these images, they're both interior scenes, um, in which there is a door in the middle. Um, actually, I'm sorry. There's a door in the the Rockwell, and then there's a a window in the Basile. Um. <laughs> and yeah, there's a chair, and there's like a chair, and there's and in short, what the algorithm proves is that both of these artists painted a room <laughs> like yeah we we knew that already, and you know it, to say that, oh, well, there's you know a chair in one room and a chair in the other room, and these chairs are both located in roughly the same area of the painting. That is not statistically, um, you know, valuable information, right? Yeah. Um, that's like within the margin of errors, right? So,
0: but I'm sure that article had some sort of clickbaity headline, like "You'll never believe what this algorithm found that art historians have missed for decades." Oh, actually, it it wasn't that clickbaity, but it is sort of
1: insulting. It says, "An intelligent algorithm made a discovery that slipped past art historians <sighs> for years." It's like well, sometimes, you know, um if we don't see something, it's because we're not asking the right questions. But conversely, maybe this is an answer to a question that's not interesting to ask, right? right? So that's one of the bigger problems with um with the application of science to looking at art, right? So to return to the olson article, right? Okay, great. Even, you know, let's put aside all of our doubts and say, okay, fine. This painting was made at 7:35 a.m. on that morning.
0: So what? So
1: what? That is an answer to a question that I am not interested in asking. Right.
0: So that's just a sort of intro to the topic of art and science, which I imagine we'll be covering uh, in many episodes to come. If you have any suggestions, please send them our way. Uh, you can find images and articles relating to today's topic by visiting our website, arthistory.today. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash arthistorytoday and on Twitter at arthisttoday. That's A R T. H-I-S-T-T-O-D-A-Y.